Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. I am so excited to have the honor and privilege to represent this industry with an administration and at a time when our leaders understand the climate crisis, they understand the health crisis, they understand the racial crisis that we have in our nation. I am convinced that we have an opportunity to start to address all of those and that clean energy policy is one of the really important ways we can do that. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome, Solar Warrior, and happy, happy new year. It's 2021, and we are kicking off the year with a two-part interview that I know you're going to love. And I am so, so grateful, as always, that you are lending us your ears, as well as the only non-renewable resource that you possess, and that's your time. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you could be listening or watching anything right now. So thank you for tuning in to our show. If you're new here, thank you for stopping by. We hope that you'll get a ton of value out of this episode. And thanks, of course, for giving us a chance to earn your attention. Hey, if you're in the solar or energy storage industry, then I'm very sure today's guest is gonna be no stranger to you. So I hope that I do some justice in making this useful and interesting as she shared most of her thoughts and plans already in a ton of different forums. I'm super excited that Abigail Ross Hopper has finally made her way over to Suncast. She is the first female president and CEO of the Solar Energy Industries Association. We all call it SIA. She joined that association back in late 2016, just as the Obama era solar boom was being handed off to the Trump administration. Abby has been dubbed the most important woman in solar by the media. And it's true, she carries an immensely important role. We'll dig into that, her background, and all of your juicy questions. Thanks, those of you who asked them. And hey, if you do like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to the show as that'll ensure that you won't miss out on our twice weekly episodes just like this one. Of course, you can always check them out. There's more than 300 additional founder stories and startup advice over at mysuncast.com. For now, let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into this first episode of 2021, another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Well, I said that she needs no introduction, but let me take a moment. Abby, or Abigail, as she's known in the public forums, is the president and CEO of SIA, as I mentioned. SIA is the national trade organization for America's solar energy industries. Through her leadership, SIA is focused on creating a marketplace where solar will constitute a significant portion of America's energy generation. It's worth noting for those who perhaps don't know her background that before joining SIA, Abby was the director of the Department of Interior's Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, where she led the agency that oversaw the leasing and development of all offshore energy from oil and natural gas to offshore wind. She was also director of the Maryland Energy Administration. 
energy advisor to Maryland's Governor Martin O'Malley, and she was the Deputy General Counsel with the Maryland Public Service Commission. It's a mouthful, but I think it bears mentioning because as the leader of an association that spends the bulk of its time defending our interests as an industry inside the Beltway and beyond, I want you to have a great understanding of who Abby Hopper is. And with that, I hope that this episode gives you the kinds of insight that you won't get in some of the other forums that perhaps you've enjoyed. Abby, welcome so much to Suncast. Nico, thank you so much for having me here. I'm really excited to talk to you. Absolutely. Well, I hope that folks aren't bored with what might be the longest intro yet to Suncast. (laughs) Certainly not your first time on a Suncast production. Thank you so much to all of the many times and ways that you've given through our summits and our interviews for Solar Power International. You're such a giver. I don't really know how you find the time to give of yourself in all of the ways that you're asked. Well, we can have a long conversation about that, but I feel I, I feel incredibly privileged to have the job that I do. I view my job as one of service. And so if you need me to come on your show or, or do that live booth at SPI or talk at one of your summits, I'm happy to do that. I love it. I love it. And you're also really good at it. You know, I wonder, you present yourself really well, which clearly is a career of having prepared yourself to speak in public. What career influences did you have growing up? I'm thinking parents, teachers, neighbors. What might have impacted or pushed you in one direction versus the other? It's so funny, Nico, because when I was young, like literally all the way through high school, every single report card said, Abby has really good ideas. We wish she would speak up more in class. <laughs> I did not want to talk. I was so shy. I couldn't even bear it, which is kind of funny. I went to an all-girls school from 7th through 12th grade. And for me, that was a pretty pivotal experience because I went to a school that told me and taught me and indoctrinated me in the idea that I could do whatever I wanted and no one could ever stop me. And so I just accepted that as a truth. And I went off to college and made that happen. I got outside of myself, felt a lot more comfortable. The first thing I did in my career, I was uh, an attorney for a decade. And so I spent a lot of time on my feet. And I say like on my feet in front of a judge, arguing cases, deposing witnesses, deposing litigants. And so you have to have a facility with language and a comfort in um, presentation if you're going to argue cases. Did you know growing up that you were going to be a lawyer? Is that something that you aspired to? Um, First, I was going to be a veterinarian. And then I was going to be an emergency room, like a trauma surgeon. Like I went to college wanting to be a trauma surgeon. I grew up right outside of Washington, D.C. I joined the Bethesda Chevy Chase Rescue Squad when I was 16. I was an EMT. And then when I went to college, I joined the fire department. I was the only woman in the fire department. And I became a firefighter and an ambulance driver as well. And that was my trajectory. I was headed to medical school, but then I had the rude awakening of organic chemistry. Oh, gosh. We did not get along. (laughs) The foil of many a med student. (laughs) Exactly. And so uh, my dad is a lawyer. My uncles are lawyers. My cousins are lawyers. So law school was not a a, a big leap for me, but I I didn't come to that realization until midway through my college career. Well, Later in the conversation, I want to get into how we as an industry might help folks thinking about coming into the industry. You are one of those folks. You've joined our industry as a relative outsider. You were involved in the meta energy landscape. But as a a 
private attorney, you developed a lot of skills that prepared you for the work that you're doing now. One of the things I find most perplexing is that folks approach me and they, and they say, how do I get in the solar industry? I don't know the jargon or I'm not an engineer. <laughs> and I point to my friends who are marketing experts and PR experts and who drive long haul trucks across the nation, coordinating logistics. And I say like, this is an actual maturing industry. And just like any industry, you don't need to be the thing that you see on television to participate in the industry. What are some of the common skills that you see that you've been able to extrapolate or that you've been able to transfer over into your role as a public advocate for the industry? I would say a couple of them because you're right. I came to the solar industry as very much an outsider. I came to the oil and gas industry very much an outsider. I came to energy very much as an outsider. It's kind of my career path is jump into a role around, about which you are not an expert and try to figure it all out. Uh, but some of the some of the skills that have been transferable are very critical thinking. Right, I learned that in law school how to think critically about problems, not accept answers just because that's how they have always been done or that's what someone tells me it should be, but sort of come to that of my own volition. I think I've learned throughout the organizations I've led that being able to build consensus and build community and build buy-in to a vision is critical, right? It is critical to be able to advocate for a policy position or create a community to go get things done. And so it doesn't really matter. I feel like that's a transferable skill that could happen in a lot of industries. But sort of to the, to your question around, you know, how do I get into this industry? I don't, I'm, I'm not an engineer. I have just always followed my passion, really. I, I do what's interesting, right? Like I am incredibly interested in this industry and the way in which it's going to transform our entire economy and the way in which we fuel ourselves. And so I wanted to work here. I wanted to be in something that was that exciting and that interesting. Similarly with offshore wind, right? Similarly with, mm. I was a divorce litigator for five years. Wow. <laughs> I was a divorce litigator for five years because I was really interested in both the financial piece of that. I was a deal lawyer before. So the, you know, the financial piece of that, but also the human piece, right? Like understanding what makes people tick and how do you solve what seem like intractable problems and help people find a way out. And so, yeah, my, my career is, is uh, interesting in that way, but it is definitely guided by inquiry and passion. I love the, the way you've tied in how to solve intractable problems, the connection that we all have some connection to 50% of families are divorced. So I intuitively understand the deal side of divorce. You mentioned that every role you came into was from the perspective of an outsider. At what point did you become aware that the energy panorama was rapidly changing and there was an opportunity for you to jump in? I entered into the energy space in 2008. I was on maternity leave, I had three children under the age of five. I was a lawyer, a divorce lawyer in private practice, billing just an incredible number of hours. And I couldn't quite figure out in my head how I was going to parent three babies and bill that number of hours. And my law firm was really having a challenging time figuring out what a less than full-time schedule might be. 
And so I was at the Court of Special Appeals arguing a case while on maternity leave and saw an old friend. Uh, we just had a governor's race in my state. He had been named the general, my friend had been named the general counsel at the Public Service Commission and offered me a job to be his deputy. I did that for a couple of years. It was very much a move for my children, not a move for my professional life. The moment I knew that there was something there and I wanted to stick with it was when I went to interview with Governor O'Malley um, in 2010 to be his energy advisor. And he and I just riffed about offshore wind and the potential for offshore wind and what it could do and how we could bring it to the federal um, lands off the state of Maryland. That's what I knew. Like This is so exciting. And to work with a governor with this much vision and this much courage to just step out and lead, I knew I wanted to stick around. You said lead, I'm sure. And I heard bleed, which is what... <laughs> <laughs> which, which unfortunately is what many governors experience when they step out into embracing renewables, especially anywhere near the Beltway where there's such a strong entrenched battleground for defending uh, fossils. You spent a lot of time with, um, with Governor O'Malley and then subsequently at the Department of Interior Bureau of Energy of Ocean Energy Management working through the, the policy and the sort of the access and rights for all energy forms, not just wind. What did you learn about the energy business in that stint at the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, B-O-E-M, we'll refer to it uh, moving forward, that has helped you in SIA? You know, I went in to BOEM. There's about 700 employees. We had offices in New Orleans, California, and Alaska. Many of my colleagues had been there for two or three decades, had invested their entire professional career in this organization. And so we're deeply vested in the energy that has traditionally been its purview, so oil and gas, right? I had half of my employees were in New Orleans. And so I learned a lot about how you meet people where they are, how you create a vision, and how you support them to move towards that vision. Um, it doesn't in my opinion, it doesn't work by coming in as one of two politicals in a 700-person organization and telling them how it has to be, but really getting buy-in and building those um, relationships. So I spent a ton of time in New Orleans, and I spent a ton of time in Alaska, and I spent a ton of time in California with my staff, even before I got to the external stakeholders. But I also learned, I mean, you know, Shell, Exxon, BP, Statoil, those were my constituents. I was lobbied by API and Noya. And so understanding kind of both, I've been offshore on drilling rigs, I've been offshore on platforms, I've been offshore on, on offshore wind. But seeing that the infrastructure itself, it's one thing to think about it or read about it or maybe even see pictures of it, but to really hop in a helicopter, fly offshore, you know, land on a drilling rig and talk to the mostly guys who work there, right? And who are working there and are there for two weeks and then fly home. It makes this conversation about transition a lot more real, right? Like there are so many billions of dollars invested in this infrastructure. There's so many people who depend on it for their employment. And so I think it, I think I have a more realistic view of this transition and, and making sure that we're not leaving people, any people behind as we transition to a clean energy economy. No one in the solar industry has ever asked me about this. No, like I've never talked about all the helicopters I got to hop on. <laughs> I just want to thank you because every interview, like 
it's not going yet until someone says, I've never said this before. That's like, good. When, when people say to me, I might get choked up. <laughs> when people say to me, what makes Suncast different? It's that. Yeah. 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 Well, you clearly care about the individuals you're interviewing and not just the list of the policy outcomes in my case. And so it makes, it creates an environment where I think people are more willing to share a little bit more of themselves. Thank you. Yeah. Picking up on that, you know, I was looking at some of the articles that are written uh, during your time at Boehm. And I think it's really, uh, it's outstanding. It's some of the photos that of, are of you in your jumpsuit on the helicopter. <laughs> and I thought to myself, you know, these are some of the things that uh, the only time people really get in a helicopter at, at a solar farm is to fly over to get that aerial picture, right? It's rare that you have to take a helicopter out to a site unless you're just incredibly wealthy. We know a few, a few developers who do that. And that's okay too. It saves time. But it's the day-to-day life of people on oil rigs. It's the day-to-day life of uh, the, uh, like wearing that sort of, of safety gear is the day-to-day life of folks that scale wind towers, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that there's just not enough exploration, even within renewables, by folks in the solar industry to really understand what's happening in wind, to really understand what's happening in geothermal, in hydro to accept that they are a rational part of our, our mix. A lot of folks are focused on solar and storage. So I love that you have not just the context of the broader renewables uh, through your experience with wind and with EWEA and the many other aisles you've had to reach across, but also that deep experience of really trying to understand what is someone who is building an oil rig in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico have to encounter? What are, the, what are their problems? What are their fears? What are their concerns? With that in mind, and I recognize this is four years back for you now, but how did you prioritize that first year in office at SIA? You were taking over for those, again, for those maybe new to the industry or whatever, Roan Resch helped sort of usher in the modern era of like what is you know, SIA and solar advocacy taking, I would say, SIA and, and all of our national advocacy to a different level by building out a great organization that had a board that was productive, that had members that were renewing annually. I mean, at the end of the day, you have to have constituents that are supporting financially. But it was time. It was time for a change. I interviewed Tony Clifford, by the way, uh, a couple of years ago, and he gushed about you <laughs> and, and about how whip smart you are and how, how much of a no-brainer it was that once, you're, once you accepted the idea that you could be proposed, proposed as a candidate, and you sort of walked into that, that it was just sort of going through the motions for everyone else of saying, oh, right. Yeah. Abby's a great fit. I just want to give the listeners that context. So you move in with a bunch of experience building consensus, change management, helping folks understand that there's a new sheriff in town, <laughs> so to speak. And you're the first female, uh, which itself is a radical change in our industry at a time where uh, you probably know the statistic. Off, off the top of your head, it was predominantly male-led. What did that first year look like? That first year was um, kind of a, a blur. Looking back on it, I started the week that President Trump was inaugurated. And so I had a board meeting the second week I was on the job. I went on a very intentional listening tour. So I, tra- I started traveling around the country, um, talking with our board members, talking with our affiliates, talking with members, 
just to hear what was on their minds, right? And sort of what they wanted and needed out of both a new administration, a, a new SIA, a, a different kind of leader. And I was really had identified some clear things that we were going to focus on. And then the trade case was filed on my hundredth day of my job. <laughs> I counted. And so that, I mean, that just took a ton of focus away from any sort of proactive planning and strategizing. And we went into full sort of defense mode. Um, and so that's why I say it was really blurry. I mean, we did really great work and I'm really proud of the, of the defense we played there. Um, if you remember at the end of that year, we went through tax reform, right? And that was just a crazy set of circumstances that were thrown on top of the trade case. And so there was like a two month period where it felt like everything in our, in our industry was up for grabs and I wasn't quite sure where it was all going to land with any new job. The first year, you don't know what's normal, right? You don't know if anything is normal. It takes the second year when you're doing something the second time when you're like, Oh, okay, this is how it goes. So the first budget and the first board meeting and the first summer and the first legislative session, like, it just was a lot. <laughs> and and you're right. I mean, Rowan did a fabulous job of building this organization. And I only had to tell 125 people, do not call me the new Roan. I will never answer to that. No disrespect to Roan, but I'm my own person. Hey, Solar Warriors. Have you gotten your ticket yet to this year's most exclusive and exciting event? That's right. I'm excited to announce that on January 20th, we're going to be hosting along with Clean Energy for Biden, the Clean Energy for America inaugural ball. This is a virtual celebration of all our achievements in 2020 with this election. This celebration is truly in gratitude for all of your hard work, Solar Warriors, in electing President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Harris to fight for our clean energy future. You can join us for this exciting first ever event that's going to bring together industry leaders, clean energy advocates, and amazing, exciting guests for an evening of celebration. Tickets are just 100 bucks for general admission, and they will surely sell out. So be sure not to sleep on this offer. There's going to be red carpet, entertainment, star-studded after party. You can get all the details as well as lock down your ticket and see other levels and sponsorship opportunities by going to mysuncast.com and clicking on the CE4B logo. That's find the CE4B logo at mysuncast.com. See you on the 20th. You know, it's notable that inside, I'll keep saying inside the beltway, but in the halls <laughs> where it mattered, where people needed to recognize your leadership for our industry, but also for you stepping into a position, following an enigmatic character like Roan, who had uh, who had ushered, who'd spent a long time uh, running SIA. You got some high, high profile people who provided accolades and were really impressed with your work. One that stood out to me was Dave McCurdy, president and CEO of American Gas Association, who offered praise that, you know, even though it's kind of odd bedfellows, the two industries, you were able to, in that year, get people to say, this is hard. And young leaders like Abby coming into the sector bring important views, incredibly articulate advocates for positions of their industries. Do you feel that your time at the governor's office, time at Boehm, helped build those bridges? And did it give you any particular advantage in building consensus outside of the solar industry, you know, inside these other organizations? 
I do think it did. When I served Governor O'Malley, one of the areas of my portfolio was dealing with all of our electric distribution utilities, with the owners of our nuke plants, with all of our gas pipeline and infrastructure, as well as Dominion had a natural gas import facility that they wanted to transform into an export facility, given the state of the gas market. You know, this was at the beginning of the fracking boom. And so it made business sense for them to get it out of here rather than bring it in. And so I formed, I think, really good working relationships with regulated utilities. And with the large, we had a couple of utility mergers during my tenure. So Exelon bought Constellation, and I negotiated that deal on behalf of my governor. First Energy bought the gosh, the utility out in Western Maryland, uh, Potomac Energy, I think. Um, and we negotiated that deal. The EDF bought 49.99% of the nukes. And then they sold 49.99% of the nukes. So there was just a lot of, inter- for a teeny tiny little state, right, that, that Maryland is, it just had an incredibly diverse energy mix. And so I engaged with many, many, many more stakeholders than one would have thought. And I was, so I was able to build consensus. We had a real issue around reliability, electric reliability in our state. And so the governor, I was sitting at this really good Mexican restaurant in Annapolis. I used to live near Annapolis. It was a Friday night and my phone rang and it was the governor. And he said, hey, uh, I'm going to issue an executive order and I'm going to give you 60 days to come up with a plan to fix our reliability problems in the state of Maryland. Okay. I was like, um, okay, sir. <laughs> so I did it. I did it. I pulled together experts, like technical experts, financing experts, all of our utilities. I got data that they'd never given anybody else. We mapped it all because I'm crazy about maps. We wrote this incredible report. We had an op-ed in the Washington Post that said, this is a great idea. We had an op-ed in the Baltimore Sun that this is a great idea. And so those kinds of things where we actually put solutions forward and partnered with utilities in ways that made sense. I think gave me credibility then when I went to, like, you know, when my name was up to, to be in the administration, you know, the head of Exelon is someone that I, I could call on to, to speak to my, my relationship and sort of the way that I work and the way that I operate. And so I think those were incredibly helpful. I love that you mentioned maps. What's your favorite kind <laughs> of map? I love all maps. I have, I, like, if I could decorate my whole house with maps, I would, but then I feel like I would look like a crazy map lady. <laughs> but I have like maps, of, I'm pointing map of the Chesapeake Bay over here, uh-huh. like topographical top, maps of places I've hiked. I love antique maps. I love anything that has data on it. So everyone knows like in my office, like, oh God, if you're going to bring something to Abby, put it on a map because then she'll like it. So, you know, I have one <laughs> in my office where all our board members are, like where their headquarters map. And I have I just, I love all maps. Do you like maps, Nico? Or is this just my own weird thing? No, you're, you're not alone. My wife's, I, I don't know if it was 35th birthday gift to me, was an antique map of Spain. I don't know where she got it from, but it's glorious. And Spain was the first place that I actually got out of the United States, right? Like relatively lower middle class, like farm boy from South Carolina I got a passport in 2001 to become a study abroad student my senior year of college. First time I got a passport. Now, for those who are regular listeners, you'll you'll recognize that like uh, I've moved 25 times in my life. That was the first time I moved, right? Like that I've been, I think I have 
36 countries under my belt at this point. Uh, I've been all over Latin wow. America with the exception of two countries and or three. Yeah, maps are important to me and my family. We have a gigantic map of Mexico on the wall, mapping all the places that we traveled in the year that we lived there. We have a gigantic map of the United States, mapping all of our friends across the U.S. and the places that we're going to visit when we travel around all the states. Yeah. So I love that. I love that. It's always fun to find another map nerd. That's really funny to hear also. Uh, your staff knows if, if you want to get, get Abby to pay attention, put it on a map. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. I want to maybe take a slightly different turn and we're going to move into a bit of maybe foreshadowing some of the stuff that we're going to talk about that's kind of looking forward. But what keeps you up at night? Right now, what keeps me up at night, right? So we're talking as the coronavirus cases are ticking up pretty exponentially. I have three kids, but I have a 13-year-old son who is just really struggling with online learning. That keeps me up at night. I would have said before the election, I was deeply worried about our democracy and sort of the, the um, health of our institutions. As you know, I'm a lawyer, and so I was feeling anxious about the court and about our legal system. I feel much less anxious now, so that's good. I worry sometimes about, like, how are we going to get this all done, right? I feel this incredible sense of urgency to change the world. Um, and, and so sometimes I can't sleep because I'm trying to figure out how, literally, how are we going to get it all done? And we have to do it like, right away. So let's keep going. Yeah, it's a big decade coming. You pronounced from the stage at SPI 2019 when we last had the chance to be together. We were there together. <laughs> oh, I'm, I may cry. I oh, it'll happen again. I'll see you guys in New Orleans. That this is the solar plus decade. So maps are important, but I think statistics are important too. Can you share a bit of the sort of the statistical analysis that CIA has undertaken to help define for our industry, what the solar plus decade means and what, what we have before us as a job to do? Yeah, we have an incredibly ambitious job before us. So we're about 2.4% of the nation's electricity generation. We were in 2020. I guess we're still in 2020 <laughs> to get to for, for now. <laughs> Maybe when this airs, we won't be. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But so to get to, to, get to 20% electricity generation, that is basically adding an incredible number of gigawatts every year up to like 75 gigawatts in 2030. So, you know, we're not there yet. We had about 250,000 people employed in solar at the beginning of this year, pre-COVID. That number would more than double to 600,000 people. Um, we're about an $18 billion industry now. Annually, it would be north of 50 billion if we do this. So all of those things are incredibly important. We have done some projections that say, sort of given our policy venue right now, we are on track to meet those. Like we've plotted it out until about 2022, and then it starts to go down. Then we need to have um, additional policies in place. But the other part that is inherent in the graph or the statistics, but is not explicit, is that that 20% isn't just coming out of the air, right? Like it's not out there waiting for someone to come get it. Other established fuel sources have it and we're going to go take it from them. And so <laughs> that's the other half of the story is like, yes, we have to, you know, we have to have the technology and all of those things, 
But we also have to understand we are going after someone else's business and they're not going to be happy about that, right? And so we have to come, as you said earlier, our industry is maturing and there's lots of different ways in which we mature. And, and my job is to make sure that we are maturing on our advocacy as well, right? That we come ready for those kind of fights, ready for that kind of challenge, that we're well-resourced, well-positioned, we have friends in all the right places. Because I, I would, I'm hard-pressed to believe that, you know, folks that have uh, that, either that business model or that part of the market are just going to hand it over to us and say, oh my gosh, it is the solar plus decade. Thank you so much. I'm glad you're here. That's not going to happen. <laughs> if you're following along in your hymnal. <laughs> we are on page 273. That's right. Oh, I can sing some hymns. Oh, yeah? Were you raised in the, in the church? Yeah, I was raised United Methodist. It's like the most feel-good religion ever. Like, yeah. We just love everybody. <laughs> oh, yeah. Garrison Keillor is Methodist, if you, I'm sure you're aware. Yeah, right? So that's, that's like the model I was raised in. But yeah, my parents, I mean, I went to church every Sunday of my whole life. I went to school, like an Episcopal school for six years. And I, I took my kids to church every Sunday for a very long time. I was I was the four-year-old Sunday school teacher for a very long time. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Whole different did, part uh, of me. Yeah, it is. It is indeed. Yeah, I was raised in the church as well. It's a, it's a deep-seated part of me. I mean, actually, part of, my, part of my story, and most of my friends who've heard like why I podcast know this story, I, from the age of two years old, was singing from stage at my church. Really? What denomination were you raised in? Oh, I was raised in the Southern Baptist Church. In fact, my grandmother and my great-grandmother were, were aisle sprinters in the free will Baptist uh, denomination, right? Mm-hmm. Like they were, they, were laying on, they were laying hands. And um, yeah, I was raised in a very spiritual household, very Southern. I didn't know the term wasp until I got into college and I was called one. But I immediately, like my rational brain, accepted the, fra- the phrase. I was like, all right, I am a wasp. Okay. Um, <laughs> But I love, I love the community aspect of church. I love, I love that it gave me the belief in myself and the courage. Yeah, a lot of who I am. And I, I, would, I would argue that a lot of, my, of who my children and probably your children are and outside of just the spiritual realm, but the, the social interaction. And there are some socialization aspects of church that I feel cultivate that community spirit, right? And they, they, they actually deeply cultivate that, that consensus building spirit. Yeah. And I think there are not that many places in our society where there's an intergenerational um, exposure, right? Like if you go to church, there's babies and old people and everyone yeah. in the middle. Yeah. And total, it's a total super spreader event. <laughs> <laughs> this is why none of us have been to one except for all That's right. since March. That always strikes me when I'm there is that my kids don't have that opportunity, right? They have grandparents, but not that many other places to interact with adults uh, who are not just their parents' friends. It's so true. My first mentors were church church elders. Yeah, mm-hmm. so true. Mm-hmm. You never know where the conversation will go on Suncast. I, I, I'm going to tell you one more story that go for is it. Uh, very personal, but about this. So my mom actually was about to, was going to go to college to study piano. And then at the last minute, she decided she didn't want to be a pianist, but she is a very accomplished pianist even though that was not her um, life calling. And so now she has Alzheimer's, and, but she can still play hymns. And so 
she has a hymnal on her piano at her at her uh, where she lives. And you know, whenever I go over there, she always wants to play hymns. And so, God bless the iPhone. I have all these little sweet videos of my mom. Who, you know, can't remember that she just told me the same story two minutes ago, but she can play those hymns so beautifully. I'll give you one more grandma grandmother story. Hope you guys are enjoying these grandmother stories. <laughs> my, my grandmother. I'm enjoying it, Nico. <laughs> my grandmother's 85, and I read somewhere that, or maybe heard. The first thing we lose is our memory of not their image or the things we did with them, but the sound of their voice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I've taken to every time I go visit my grandmother, I take my podcast gear and sit down, record with yeah. her. Oh, <laughs> and, what a gift. And she sat down and sang with me, which something we've done my entire life, but in a way that she never had before. She pulled out a box of paper. And on every sheet was a song that she had written for, for 60 years. She's been writing songs more. I don't think she has the old ones, but she's been writing songs since she was 12. And she told me the story of how she began writing songs at 12 and how she wanted to be a singer. And she said, nobody's ever heard these. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Wow. So now they're recorded. I, told, I said, well, Grandma, you're now a recording artist. <laughs> <laughs> And she chuckled in the way only grandmas can do. And uh, it, was a, it was a very special moment. Yeah. Uh, and hymns have played an important role in my life as well. Thanks for sharing that with me, Abby. Yeah, no, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Well, in the way that we inherit lots of things from our family and our community, we often inherit things by way of our work. And you inherited a trade association that had ridden the waves of what could be easily dubbed an exuberant tide of eight years, the Obama-Biden administration, the American Reinvestment and Recovery Act, historic solar industry price declines, paving the way for solar to be the cheapest form of energy on the planet. The last four years probably felt a bit like a headwind in comparison. And while we may leave some time to talk about the the past four years, but we now face another historic uh, moment uh, where President-elect Biden in what, from the time of the publishing of this, will be in a couple of weeks, is going to take oath into office. Uh, What are you most looking forward to in the next four years and what we hope to be the wave that you get to ride? I would very much like to ride that wave. (laughs) I am so excited to have the honor and privilege to represent this industry with an administration and at a time when... Our leaders understand the climate crisis, they understand the health crisis, they understand the racial crisis that we have in our nation. And they really, I I am convinced that we have an opportunity to start to address all of those um, and that clean energy policy is one of the really important ways we can do that. And so the amount of outreach we've already had since the election was called to get our input into what an administration should look like, who should be there, how should we be pursuing these policies, what are our priorities, I can already feel the difference. And I can only imagine what that wave will look like. I mean, there's, I've said for a long time, right, there's no doubt in my mind that we are moving towards a decarbonized economy, right? I think there is just enough market force, enough political pressure, enough consumer demand it's always been about the pace of that 
transformation and whether it sort of happens slowly or whether it kind of is like a wave and just takes off. I have had the privilege of, you know, hearing the president-elect speak in smaller settings. And I do believe he has a deep, deep, heartfelt passion for these issues. So I am beyond excited to work on them. Well, President-elect Biden said that by 2050, an expected 1.7 trillion investment will have been doled out. The U.S. will be 100% clean energy economy with net zero emissions. Bold claims by any standard. We believe that it's possible in many ways before 2050, certainly 80, 90%. That's for a, a separate podcast episode. But what do you feel we should realistically expect in terms of timelines as we move into year one of a Biden administration? What are the partnerships and fundings look like and how uh, similarly can regular Janes like you and your constituents contribute to that goal? In my conversations with the president-elect's team, they have been very clear that they want to make progress quick, right? They want to get out of the, get out of the gate fast and, and make significant transformation in those first 100 days, first year, two years. And so I would expect some pretty bold action by the president-elect and his team. I think that can happen through supporting legislation. I think that can happen through executive order. I think it can happen through appointments. I think it can happen through revocation of things like the 201 tariffs. Uh, but I do think there's, um, I think we should, we should expect and demand some pretty quick action on our front. Looking more holistically sort of over a first term um, and out beyond that, I think that we will see these partnerships between the environmental justice community and the renewable energy community, I think that will happen. It must happen. And I I will certainly do everything in my power to make sure that it does. I think we'll see additional funding on the um, R&D side, right, over at DOE. I think there will be a much more concerted effort to harness the force of the federal government as a buyer of energy and DOD as a buyer of energy and create more pathways for product through through those as off-takers, I think we'll have a much more rational trade policy. Um, and I think that will provide a lot more certainty. I mean, I think because I, you know, I, I spent the first part of my legal career before I was getting people divorced, I was helping private companies go public or do private equity or whatever. And so certainty is critical, right? As you think about where you're going to deploy your capital and how much risk are you willing to take on it at what price, it really is about certainty. And so I feel like this president is going to bring a lot of certainty, right? He's, he's going to govern with a much steadier hand. And while, you know, we may not get every single thing on the checklist, because obviously my checklist is really aggressive. Um, I think there will be like the swings in terms of what could happen will be a lot narrower and that investors and financiers in our space will be a lot more comfortable with what's going to happen. And I think that's that's a whole important part of our uh, industry that we can't forget. I agree with Abby on a ton of points that she's just raised. And I hope that you're hanging on a thread here. The important part of our industry that I can't forget is you, Solar Warrior. And that's why we show up every single week to bring you this kind of insider insight into what's driving the solar and clean energy business forward. If you've been enjoying this interview with Abby, then you'll want to make sure that you're subscribed to the pod because part two is coming your way on Thursday. 
Abby and I get into Sia's detailed 6 for 46 plan for Biden's first 100 days in office. And of course, we get into more of her own lessons learned, books, daily routines, and even secret obsessions. Yeah, more than you thought you needed to know about Abby Hopper. And that's all in part two on Thursday. In the meantime, you can find more resources and highlights from this and every discussion, along with social media links from myself and the guests, book recommendations, and more over on the blog at mysuncast.com. And that's also where you'll find the links to register for that Clean Energy for America inaugural ball I mentioned. If you're a Clean Energy for Biden member, go ahead and check your newsletter for that super secret insider link to your special discounted price. For everybody else, click on the CE4B logo on my website at mysuncast.com and go get registered before the early bird deadline. Hey, if you're also interested in sponsoring this event, then shoot me a quick note ASAP, Nico at mysuncast.com, with inaugural ball in the subject line. Sponsorship deadline ends January 10th. So chop, chop. We hope to see you there with thousands of other clean energy warriors just like you. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warriors. It's half the battle. <laughs>